But we are going to resume our study here, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to end up finishing this chapter this morning down to verse 16. Let me read to you. Reading from the New King James, it says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The title of the study is Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing. And that's what Paul was communicating to this uh, young pastor who was finding himself in the midst of a congregation where there was conflict going on. Not, mo- not the majority, but there were enough that Paul was telling him how to correct these uh, wayward brothers at best, at worst, these unbelievers who were parading as believers and undermining the word of God. We don't really know, but, but he's dealing with them. Um, at the church there in Ephesus. And so he encourages him to uh, confront these problems, and now he's encouraging him to keep it, those, those elements of what it means to lead and oversee a, a, a flock, to make certain that he keeps those things in focus. We begin looking there at verse 12, and we see here the necessity of leading in conflict. Let no one despise your youth. That, that phrase right there tells us that this young pastor, and by young, what do we mean? Well, the, the word that is used here is normally used to describe somebody under the age of 40. Most people think he was probably in his 30s somewhere. So he is uh, this young man, and according to the Greek culture of that day, that was still considered to be a youth. So some of you are just barely out of your youth. So find encouragement this morning. But he says, uh, don't let anyone despise you of this. So people were hearing what Timothy had to say. He was leading. He was being a, a, a bold pastor, correcting the problems. Paul anticipates as Timothy would follow the instructions that he gave him that indeed he would encounter conflict, and that conflict, one of the ways in which it would manifest itself is that some would begin to pick away, saying, listen here, you know, boy, you, you don't know, you haven't lived long enough to tell us how to live. And Paul says, don't let that happen. Youth is not a liability to the Lord. You do know that, right? God loves to use young people. God loves to to take the person who has a heart towards them and then to to, to meet them. I mean, there's so many examples in Scripture. We can think of David or or Joseph when he began to get those dreams or Jeremiah who was well aware of his youth and was afraid of the mission of going and actually rebuking his father's friends, the leaders in Israel. Esther. Mary, the mother of our Lord, Mark, and many, many others. These were all young people, the disciples. They were young guys when the Lord got around them. 
And it's important that youth are always finding their way. Young people are always finding their way into those ministry opportunities. And I so appreciate the heart of, of uh, this congregation to receive young people. I mean, when I started, um, when I arrived in Lynchburg, I was 27 years old. And I looked like I was 19 years old. Now I look 21. But you know, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I looked, I, I looked young. But you know, many of you know Denny and Ave. And um, when we first started, Denny was here, and he was, he was, he was older than 27, and he didn't look 19. Uh, but, but he was always, everybody always assumed he was a pastor because he was um, older. And, um, and Denny and Ave, um, they just, they propped up my hands. As a matter of fact, all of that, that first round of elders that this, this body had, it was, it was Denny and um, it was uh, Bill Toy and Joe Palmer, and all of these men were, were older than me. They're still older than me. But you know, none of them uh, despised me. It didn't mean I always did it right. I, I remember one day when Bill said, hey, this kind of seems like we've changed up how, what the requirements are of, of, of what it is to be uh, an elder and what the expectations are. I said, you're absolutely right, rookie pastor. I'm figuring, I'm figuring some of this stuff out. And he's like, I'm okay with that. That's all right. And I, so there was a there was a spirit in you know among the uh, the older congregation. I mean, when I first got here, I talked to you know Joe Palmer, and um, as we talked about the possibility of me coming out, and there was a few other families with them at that time. I said to Joe, I said, "All right, I'm really young. Is that a problem?" He says. If you love the people of God and you teach the word, there's no problem at all. I said, well, I'm planning on doing that. So, and, and so there was a, a receptivity. Now, not everybody, not everybody. Some people left because they had a young pastor come in. And that's all right. You know, that, that, that's okay. They, they weren't despising my youth. They just didn't trust my youth, nor did they know my character at that point in time. But we need to be welcoming and receptive, and we should rejoice when we see young people serving, and we should encourage them in that. There is place for that, and Timothy is a shining example. But, you know, I just want to continue, as we did in our previous study, if you can recall that far back. Um, our previous study, as we were going through uh, chapter 4, is applying this in the home. And, you know, I, I just it's important that you are encouraging your kids, and as they step out in the things of the Lord, that you are supporting them in that, and you're uh, uh, getting excited about that. You know, the word despised, katafroneo, means to look down on someone or something with contempt or aversion, with the implication that one considers the object of little value, they despise, they, they scorn. And so this is what he says, don't let anybody treat you as a person who has little value. Not just as a, a young person in society, but as a young minister. Don't let anybody count you as uh, uh, inconsequential as a leader of the congregation because you are young. And this is... One of the imperatives, one of the first imperatives, there are eight imperatives, which is a command in Scripture. And these short verses, they're, uh, 12 to 16, there are eight different imperatives that are listed. And this is the first of them. Don't let this happen. 
I command you, don't allow people to count your position, just because you're young, of having little value or significance. Don't be despised. So why not? Why was he saying don't allow yourself to be despised? Not because leadership is a place that means you can't be called into question. That's, that's not the way it works. We know how it works. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. Is that if you have an accusation against a, a person in leadership, you should, you should come and you should handle that in the proper way. You should come with two or three witnesses and you should bring that against them. That's what the Word of God says. So it's not, the Word of God does not ever uh, intend to so insulate the leadership of the church that they can't be questioned when things have gone wrong. But it certainly happens. And the leadership can become quite intimidating and pushing away, unwilling to hear and sit down and have conversation. Because I'm the pastor, because I'm an elder, because I'm a leader. Don't you dare question me. Yeah, that's not, that's not what Paul's aiming at at all. This is something that was important because if his youth was despised as that role of minister, then the things he had to say could be discounted. And if the things he had to say were going to be discounted, then the church was going to be overtaken by these false teachers and the gospel was going to suffer harm. So this is not about having some kind of... Uh, position where it's unassailable and nobody should ever question just because you have the position. No, it's, it's because if that, those accusations are meant to tear down the credibility of the things the person is saying, then the church is in real danger. So Paul gives this commandment, don't let this happen. This wasn't a character misstep or ministry abuse that was being corrected, and those things should be corrected. You have permission to, you know, approach me in the way the Word of God tells you to, um, or any of the leaders. Was this a legitimate threat against teaching the Word of God? I believe that it was. That if he didn't stand up and say, absolutely not, you're not going to discount me, and he goes on to tell him you know, how to do that in just a moment. And, and it doesn't come by raising your voice and it doesn't come through um, you know, belittling the person bringing the accusation. Still in verse 12, he says, But be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. The word example is the Greek word tupos. And its, it's primary meaning, it's, it's like dictionary meaning number one, if you will, was uh, a, an impression that was made as a result of a blow or pressure. So you can think of maybe like a signet ring going on to wax. Something that hits it, strikes it, and it leaves its mark. That is what he says, be an example. But definition six of two posts, it really you know, dials a little bit closer into what's being said is, he goes, be an archetype, be the model, be the pattern of how you live morally, that people would be able to look at your life. How do you silence those who say, you are young and I shouldn't pay attention to you? You, you become an example. You become, uh, in your, and he's going to list it specifically, but morally you become a person that when your life is scrutinized, 
It stands up to the scrutiny. And then they cannot dismiss you because of that. And the first thing that he mentions here is that he should be an example in word. It's a Greek word, logos. You've heard this word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? John chapter 1, verse 1. And the word there is logos. This is the same word, logos. A communication that um, is, uh, is being put forth in an oral manner. So what the things that you say, you should be an example. This refers to his day-to-day communication, his talking with one another. Um, he's going to talk more about preaching in the next verse, right? He's going to talk about reading and exhortation. And doctrine, which is the, can also be translated teaching. So right here, this is not talking about how you preach the word of God. He's not talking about the time inside, um, you know, if you will, you know, behind the pulpit. He's talking about what his conversation and what his speech sounds like when he's not engaged in ministry. What is your speech like? Of course, one thing that, you know, youth is known for is, it's kind of being a little loose with the tongue and being you know, strongly opinionated about things many times of which you know not. And so the, this is, he's saying, you know, make sure that you are a pattern. You're that, archety- you're that archetype that if somebody was to look and say, how should I talk? They could look at your life, Timothy, and say, that's how you speak. That's how you interact with people. A minister's speech is one that is geared and focused towards the things that will bring edification. In Ephesians, Paul says, speaking only those things which bring edification. Only edification. This is is what our speech should be used for. Let me ask you, you know, in the last few weeks with all that's gone on in the country, how have you used your speech? Have you used your speech to build up, to edify, to strengthen Because that's what you're commanded to do. That's what I'm commanded to do, is to use my speech. And I don't have to come up with my own ideas because the Word of God instructs me and tells me how to walk, how to interact in these times in which we are living. So in my speech, I should be an example. It shouldn't be foul speech. It shouldn't be coarse jesting. It shouldn't be exaggeration. It shouldn't be gossip. It shouldn't be outbursts of wrath. It shouldn't be an attack against another person's character. Th- these things are not the way, what's supposed to be, how we're supposed to talk. Our speech should be an example of the believer and for the believer. He also says in conduct. And this just refers to living an upstanding life. It's a very broad word. That your life would... Uh, be the, the principles by which others would say, oh, that's how you do it. So it certainly would include the speech we just talked about, but it's a broader, that you are conducting yourself in a manner that people would look and say, that's the kind of conduct we should have. It includes the habits and the ways in which you deal with people. Specifically, James 3.13 says, Who is wise and an understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. That's a mouthful. By good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Living a life that is godly will give the young minister Timothy credibility and, of course, 
he could be viewed as one that has wise understanding. So in conduct. And then he comes to this very familiar word. He says, in love, agape. That's the word that he uses here. And it's, I love this, this, this definition. It says, the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. The quality of warm regard for and interest in another. That, that's how we're to, to, to walk. That's how Timothy was to be seen. Goes on to say, the definition goes on to say, of human love and without indication of the person's who is the object of interest? In other words, you love everybody. You have a warm affection for all people at all times. Timothy, if you love people, if you're warmly receiving them and you're concerned about them and you have an interest in them without regard for who they are or what they can uh, supply for you, Lord, this is going to help you to, to stop that uh, despising because you're an example and they're, they, they, they're not going to be able to sell your character because you'll be loving all people warmly. Let's be honest. It's very easy to find a certain group of people to be cool towards, isn't it? Oh, I don't hate them. But the commandment isn't to be neutral. The commandment is to be, have a warm affection towards them. That, that's, what, that's the command that I have. But again, I think these things are for the, the church that's in your house. You need to be exemplifying this, mom and dad. This needs to be modeled. And so at the dinner table and around the house, how do they hear you talk? How do they hear you interact in the conflicts that you have? I think that there's wisdom as your kids get older to, to know a little bit about the conflict so they might have the, the model. But boy, you've got to be wise. And if you're not going to deal with a conflict and you're not going to have a, 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 a warm affection towards all people having an interest in them, that, that they're going to pick it up and they're going to walk it out. So we love people. We talked about this last week. It's, the, it's a royal law. It's a royal command. I say you love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? <laughs> Anybody that's around you is your neighbor. It was given, of course, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was a given that you would love your countrymen. But, so Jesus went beyond that and he says, let me tell you about the Samaritan. So he didn't, he didn't name other Israelites because they knew that that was a love they were all ready to have. So he says, let me go to your enemy. But in going to talk about loving your enemy, it didn't mean he passed over a love for the Israelites. It's, it's, it's a way for Jesus to say, we are to love all people. We're to have a warm affection for them and their interest at all times. This is how we should be conducting ourselves. This is how I should conduct myself. Now listen, I, 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 I'm pretty self-aware. I do not have the warmest, coziest personality out there, okay? That's just, but don't, don't look at that. You know, you, you, sometimes you see me up here, you see me talking, you hear me, you know, well, he looks so comfortable. Listen, I am not the most comfortable person in um, interpersonal interaction. I do it, but that's not, that's not the easiest thing for me, to walk into a room full of people. And some of you maybe have even dismissed yourself from ministry because of that. Well, here I am standing in front of you right now, right? So, you know, 
just your personality is not well. I'm I'm outgoing and therefore I love people. I'm in, you know an introvert, therefore I don't. No, that's not the way it it works. In who your personality and how God has made you up, be loving. Warmly receive people. That is what the Word of God is commanding. Now this next point. In which he is to be an example in. It's in the King James, New King James. Some of your versions don't have it. But he says, in spirit. This is the attitude in which ministry is to, uh, is to be done. Not so much be filled with the spirit, but let there be a fervency in the tasks that you put your hand to. Let them see some zeal. Let them see some passion in this. I mean, who wants to follow a passionless leader? Who wants to follow somebody that isn't sold out for a cause and is pushing forward in that? People want to follow somebody that's going somewhere. They want a leader. And they want that leader to be passionate about where they are headed. In faith, a minister's life should be one that is full of faith in God. Not filled with fears and questions about God and is it all going to work out. A pastor should be one that is seen speaking and living a life of faith. They trust God. They have confidence in Him, which is easy to do when everything is going right. Anybody can do that. But what about when it all seems to be going wrong? And this is where the leadership needs to be walking in faith. God's going to work it out. God's going to, I don't know how it's going to happen. But God's going to work this out. And then he says, in purity. In purity. Conforming to the, the law of God, both in thought and action. That's the implication of this. In purity. It isn't just your, your actions are pure, but it's that your thoughts, your motives for why you do what you do. That they are pure before God. This is the way a believer is to live. Now, in verse 13, we move on out of this kind of how you can be an example. And he begins to talk about some of the indispensable work that he's to do. So this is your character. Have a character. Be an example that people can look at. It's going to help so that when people want to despise you, that they don't have. It doesn't mean they're going to, you're going to stop them from despising you, but they won't have a means by which to build their case against you because you have been an example. But in verse 13, he now talks about the task that he should be walking in in the midst of that conflict. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Give attention to. One Greek word. And this is that you should be devoted to this thought. This is what you should be uh, concerned about over and over again. Now, again, there's, as it is in every language, there's, um, there's nuances in, in, different, in every word. One of the nuances that's interesting for the till I come, or to the give attention, um, is this, is that to bring a ship to land, to bring near. Now, you know, this is, the idea is that you would cling to these things, you would be fully devoted to that, um, through your thought and through your effort, but this idea of a ship coming in to the shore, to the land to deliver its goods, till I come, give attention. Hey, bring the ship of scriptures into the congregation, Timothy. Unload the goods at the, at the port of every one of those listeners. This is your job, is that you would do that. 
Be focused on this. Don't allow yourself to be caught up with other ideas. Be addicted to this process. Give yourself attention to. Attend to this continually. It's my strong belief that any pastor that fails to follow this instruction is making one of the gravest mistakes he can make in ministry is to not give attention to, and place to the Word of God. I don't stand up here and give you my opinions. I'm sure that there are times when that happens, but I can tell you that I really seek to put the text in front of you. I try to draw away as much as is possible my own personal opinions and feelings and to allow the Word of God to speak to the situation. And when this is forgotten or this is set aside... It's, a, it's, it's tragedy time. Let me read to you from John 21, verses 15 through 17, to catch the Lord's heart for how he wanted Peter to deal with this. Verse 15 says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, what does he say? Feed my sheep. That's what's important to me, Peter. Feed them. Feed my lambs. And then verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, why three? That's your homework. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus is recommissioning Peter in ministry after his great failure in the, uh, of denying him. And the things that he wants him to know more than anything else is that you would take care of my, the flock. If you love me, Peter, you're going to, in the role that you're going to have, you're going to attend to the flock. You're going to feed them the word of God. Now, I remember when I got here all those years ago, um, I had somebody tell me, many people tell me, actually one person in particular who was a pastor in this town, and he was on his way out. It was not a good experience for him. I really don't know all the details, but I rolled into town. I can still remember the day. I rolled into town, and it was just right over here, actually, just these little office units just right at the next light um, was where we were meeting. And we had just put up the sign. It's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal when you put up the sign for the first time on something. And we had just put up the sign, and I was looking at it and just thinking about what the Lord was going to do in that 1,200-square-foot building. And just, just waiting, just praying. And the, there was a pastor who was meeting in the bottom units below but was leaving. And I asked him before we moved in there, do you mind if we do because you're moving out? And he said, absolutely. No, it's fine. And so... Um, uh, there was no conflict on that point. But then he came up and he said, so you, you're here. Why did you come to Lynchburg, Virginia? And I said, well, I feel like the Lord called me to come and, and to teach the word of God, to take people through the, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, to uh, bring a balanced view of how we are to interact with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, um, but yeah, he goes, so you're going to teach Genesis to Revelation? I said, yeah. He says, good luck with that. And I said, well, I mean, what else? You know, he goes, they, he goes, that, you'll, you'll bore them. People are not interested in the word of God in this town like that. 
I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to learn that for myself. I said, this is what I'm going to do. And, and so this guy had given up on teaching the word of God. And there are many churches that would rather communicate with you the, the latest philosophies, the latest trends, the latest ideas, but that's not what Peter's called to. The indispensable work of the pastor is to interact with the Word of God. He says, you should do this, Peter. Don't let your attention go anywhere else. Reading. This is pretty self-explanatory. Church should be a place where the Bible is needed. Do any of you remember the trend that came through the church that said, don't have Bibles on your lap in church? Does anybody remember that? And the reason, yeah, this is, this is real. So all these things kind of circle to the church. It's like, yeah, don't, you know, don't have a Bible. Ask your people in the congregation not to bring the Bible. Because we want the, the world that comes outside and they come into the church, we want to make sure they don't feel uncomfortable and feel intimidated by having a Bible. You know, I have this opinion. You could go get the, the meanest person in this town who's the most ungodly, and if he was willing to come to church, he would anticipate that you would have a Bible. This is the church trying to outsmart themselves. So yeah, your Bible. I, I mean, listen, okay, the Bible. This, this is a Bible, but you know, your Bible can be on this too. So I'm not trying to make a, I'm just saying have the word of God with you. The, the word of God should be read at church. You need your Bible when you go to church. And if you don't need your Bible, you need to find another church. That's that simple because that is the, that is the indispensable work of a pastor. Reading, exhortation, read the passage. After you've read the passage, call people and challenge people to live it out. And doctrine, or the word teaching, the truths of Scripture that constitute what we believe as Christians are, that's what a pastor's to do. Again, I, you know, I remember, again, around the same time, it was a real big deal. Hey, well, we, we won't, we're not going to emphasize doctrine at this church. This is what they would say. Doctrine scares people away. Well, what does the word doctrine mean? It means teaching. So teacher, if you're going to stand in front of people and you're not going to give doctrine, then that means you're not going to teach. That's what the word doctrine and teaching are. This, it's, you translate them either way from the Greek. The, we need to know what we believe. As Jude said, the, the faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. It's our job to hold on to it and to know what we believe. And by holding on to the doctrine and the teaching, we're able to ward off the false teaching that comes. So again, applying this to, to those of you that are parents, you should be bringing the word of God to your family. That ship should be coming to shore on a consistent, regular basis. As we like to read from Deuteronomy, as you're rising and as you're lying down, as you're coming out and as you're, you're, and as you're, as you're going out and coming in. All the time, the Word of God. Your best pulpit, mom and dad, is probably going to be the four-wheel vehicle you have. You're going to have more conversations about deep things of uh, life and hurts and pains and, and the, the Word of God. Those moments, seize them. And if you don't have that, you've got to make the moment at the, at the dinner table, at the breakfast table, wherever you are, that the Word of God is constantly being talked about, that that ship is coming to shore. You're giving attention. 
When is the last time you offloaded the doctrine and the exhortation of the Word of God to your family? Well, I don't want to be pushy. Well, if reading and giving exhortation and doctrine is pushy, it's time to get pushy. I don't think that's pushy, though. That's just doing what we need to do. I just want my kids to reach their own conclusions. And I want them to come to their own understanding. So, well, listen. Do you think they're living in a vacuum? Do you think your children are not being influenced by other thought that's out there? Every day, all day long. Listen, you, every one of us begin the day behind the eight ball with the world we live in and the way communication flows today with your children. There is so much information that's flooding into their ears. Be wise at what they hear. Well, you allow them to hear, but understand it's the Word of God, reading and exhortation and doctrine. So very important. In verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership, which is the gift is the teaching to be a pastor. Use your gift. The temptation would be, I'm being despised, therefore I quit. Nobody's valuing my position here, or if you are not valuing, so I'm just going to walk away. So Paul says, let me remind you of something. You've got a gift from God. You're not just walking down a path of your own personal interest and your own passions. Timothy, you're doing what God has called you to do. This is not your idea, Timothy. This is God's idea for your life, as is true for each and every one of you. God has given you a spiritual gift. It's his idea to use you for the kingdom of God. And so when conflict or hardship hits, a good place to go is to the place of remembering that the Lord has gifted you and that he's called you. Walk it out. Yeah, but it's so hard or this thing happened or this wasn't what, you know, a very good experience. Yeah, that happens. That happens. But it should not push us back off the mark of what God has called us and gifted us. Gifts are not your talents. Your talents, talents are what every human being is born with. Every human being has a set of talents, something they're really good at. Gifts of the Spirit are something different. Now, what's beautiful is when the Lord takes a talent and then he uses and fuses a spiritual gift with it. And that's a wonderful thing. Right? So we, what am I talking about? Well, okay, there's some people that are very gifted musicians in our church. That, that's a talent that they have. But the Lord has called them to not play music, but to, to really, to prophesy. Prophesy? Yeah, prophesy. What is prophesy? It's speaking forth the Word of God. They do that with the, the lyrics that come from Scripture. And so they, they're, the prophetic voice is coming from the worship team of the Word of God, and it has an impact. And so their spiritual gifting is fusing with their talent. And we could go down the line. It's a person that's really uh, good at organization and administration. And then the Lord gives them the gifting of administration and they're able to work so well in that position. They come from the Lord. 
You have a gift that is outside of your natural talents if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Lord wants you to walk it out. He wants you to use that gifting. If you don't know what it is, then get together with some brothers and sisters. Talk to your home fellowship leader. Talk to one of your team leaders. Contact one of the pastors on staff. Discover what your gifting is. And the best place for you to discover what your gifting is is to start meeting the urgent need, the need that presents itself. And as you begin to meet the urgent need that is presenting itself, you're going to see that there are certain things that you are drawn to over and over again. And that as you put your hand to them, they bear fruit for the kingdom of God. So if, if you want to just sit back and wait till you have something that just drops out of the sky and say, here is your, your talent or here is your spiritual gift, it may happen, but it may not. Sometimes you, most of the time, I'll say, people are learning their spiritual gifts as they are just being a servant and meeting any need. And then the Lord begins to really guide them and direct them. And so just get busy. Have a love for the Lord and a love for the church. And you'll discover your gift in no time. In verse 15, we see that he is to have an unreserved focus. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Timothy, ponder the things I just talked about. Your character, being an example, reading, an exhortation, and teaching. Let these things just, just sink into your mind. Think about how God has called you. Meditate on that. Think about the day when that prophetic word came and hands were laid on you by the elders and you were sent out into ministry. Let that sink in. Let that holy moment have an impact upon you that will cheer you in the midst of the conflict to keep on pressing on. That is a good word for us and you can apply that in many different ways. But give yourself entirely to the work. Don't lag behind in diligence. Don't allow your hobbies to overtake your uh, effort and ministry. Don't allow your, your uh, interest to do that. No, allow this to be the one thing that consumes your life. Give yourself entirely to it. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow the Lord and his plan for your life. You know, we all have many things we can do. But the one thing that all of us have been commanded to do is this. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. First priority is the kingdom of God. Now like, okay, first is the kingdom, and then closely behind that is my family, and then closely behind that is my work, and then right behind that is, a, uh, is my hobbies. It's a photo finish. I mean, we've got to take a picture, and we've got to get down to one hundredths of a second to find out who's first. No, not that kind of first. Let it be preeminent in your life. That anybody would be able to look at your life or my life and they could see the emphasis upon seeking after the kingdom of God. And when you do this, there's going to be growth in your life and people are going to see that you, the man that you're becoming and the minister that you are growing into. You know, they're despising his youth. They were maybe questioning some of his abilities. Don't worry about it, Timothy. You'll get the ability. Just be diligent. <laughs> Listen, when I first started teaching the Word of God, it was a train wreck. I didn't say anything heretical, but you couldn't follow it either. <laughs> All right? As a, as a you know, high schooler trying to sit down, 
Somebody says, just teach this Bible study. Now, here, teach Romans chapter 4. That's what they said. Go teach Romans chapter 4. It's not like it's a lightweight chapter, okay? Oh, my goodness. I kept those notes for like years and years and years. And I went through them at one time. And I'm like, I just, I, I burned them. I just, like, I cannot look at this any longer. I kind of wish I would have kept them now. It looked like a preschooler put them together. It was just, it, it was so embarrassing. But you know, and I remember when I, my first, you know, week as a full-time minister um, over in Australia, and I was supposed to start teaching. And I sat down to prepare a Bible study, and I was, was in this, people were gone. I was staying in their house. I was all by myself over there in Australia. <laughs> and I sat down to do the Bible study, and I worked all day, and it was terrible. And then the next day I worked again, it was terrible. And somewhere in that week, I got desperate. I remember just being in this room by myself, and I just said, Lord, I don't know how to teach a Bible study. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I came over here. I'm sitting in this house all by myself. I don't know anybody here, and I'm supposed to teach a Bible study, and this is not helpful <laughs> material. I knew it. And I just, I just called out to the Lord, and I said, Lord, Teach me how to teach. And all I can tell you is in that moment, the Lord met me in a very special way. But there's a progress that will come as you are faithful. And if you're just starting out, you're not going to have the skills, you know, fully honed and at their sharpest. That's all right. You keep giving yourself to that work and then your progress. You're going to grow in that. Lastly, verse 16. He tells them to take heed. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. A couple more imperatives here. Take heed to yourself. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your, your teaching. If your life is right and your teaching is right, you're going to be safe. And the people you minister to, they're going to be safe as well. They're going to be in a good place. He says, continue. This is the last of the eight imperatives. It means to persevere in. And it's in the present tense. Keep, keep on doing this, right? Keep on taking heed to yourself. Keep on paying attention to your doctrine. When do you, as a servant of the Lord, when do I, as a pastor, say, eh, that's good enough. I think I've accomplished about all I really need to know. And I've, I've honed my skills about as much as I need to in the ministry. That's good enough. No, no, no. It's a, it's a present tense imperative. This is something you keep on doing. You, you never get to the place where you stop. And you know, here's the encouraging thing. As that happens, you're going to be safe, and those you minister to are going to be safe as well. You know, the enemy is on a rampage, and he's trying to tear down pastors and ministers, and he's trying to tear down the people that pastors and ministers minister to, the church. This is what the enemy's doing. And this is what, what Paul identifies. Take heed gives that indication of trouble is around. Things are trying to rip you down, Timothy, and they're trying to tear the flock apart. But you take heed to yourself and to the things that you say. And the net result, the end result, is going to be that there will be safety. That things are going to be right in your life and in the lives of those you're ministering to. You know, we had this whole COVID thing that came. And listen, I'm not trying to say this is all about the church. 
I'm not saying that. But it certainly has had a profound impact upon the church. Profound impact. And fellowship and those that have found it really difficult to not have that interaction and that support. Some of you don't feel that as much because you're surrounded by people in your house that love the Lord and you have contact with other family members. Not everybody is blessed as you. There are some that have really had a difficult time through this. And so this is, this is a serious time for the church. You, you, you have to know that the enemy has just been rubbing his hands together. and like, are you kidding me? I'm going to be able to shut down the church around the world for eight weeks or 12 weeks? I've got it. I've got it in my hand. But you know what? The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. The church may be purged. The church may refocus her priorities. We, they, there may be new emphasis that come out of it. That's all good stuff. That is all good stuff. Here, here the, I want you to hear this. And I know this is not true for everybody. This is my own sampling. I have talked to so many pastors and other pastors I've talked with have talked to so many. And within that circle, and this is not the case everywhere, but within that circle, every one of these guys have said, that the financial support within the church has gone up, not gone down. That's awesome. I think that is an awesome thing because it just it's the church of Jesus Christ said, oh, wait, we have to, we have to make certain that we attend to things. We, we've been able to increase our missions budget through COVID-19, not decrease it. And so, you know, th- these are the things that, that are going on and you would think, oh, this is really going to push back the church. Hey, do you think, just imagine, do you think that I was a little nervous when I said the church, when I heard the church wasn't going to be able to meet? We have a radio station. We have a building project. And we've got a, you know, a lot of people on staff that I'm responsible for. I guarantee you, I felt it. I mean, I didn't, my, my own house could care less. It was all those other things that I was just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is like the worst time in the history of the church to build a church. And I'm doing it. What was I thinking? And then the radio station. Well, if, you know, if, if the churches aren't going to be meeting, and then these, these pastors who are on the radio, they're probably not going to want to be on the radio. They're going to have to save their funds. And then the radio. No, none of that has happened. And so I'm sure the enemy was thinking, this is the opportunity. But you know what? It actually has given more opportunity for the church to respond and to, to reach out. And I'm looking for exactly what that is. I can tell you this. I don't know exactly what those changes are going to be yet, but we're praying every day about it. And I have learned this. I haven't learned, if I haven't learned anything else, I've learned this in 25 years of ministry. Be patient, and the Lord will show you what he intends to do. So Listen. The enemy, long point, is on a rampage. And he saw the COVID uh, thing and the church not being able to, to meet, not having that face-to-face fellowship. Many of you said, well, it's not about the building. Listen, I know that point more than I've ever known it in my entire life. Here we are, outside in a parking lot. Yes, of course, I, I, I fully understand that point more than ever. So it's about the gathering. It's not about the building. But we were told we couldn't gather. We could build. We couldn't gather. 
That was the, that was the, that's been the concern of, of, of the elders and the staff, your home fellowship leaders. So that's, that's what the enemy's trying to work that, and it's like not even are out of it. And now this whole other thing erupts in our country, and the country tearing itself apart, and much of that has come with inside the church as well. And it's like the enemy's like, oh, attack from outside, and then there's the attack from within. But you know what? We're going to walk in love with each other. We're going to walk in grace with each other. We're going to forgive each other. We're going to understand each other. We'll be stronger for it in Christ, and we will forge ahead with the work that God has given to us, which has not changed in 2,000 years, is to come and encounter the Lord and worship him, to be a place where we are equipped for ministry and that we go out and we evangelize this town and the world. That is who we are, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that work as long as we stay on target. So we can have full confidence that the Lord's got a plan. I don't know, I don't fully know what, how it's going to change. I'll be very candid and honest with that, about that. But I know the Lord's going to lead us. And you be praying too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your truth. We ask, Lord Jesus, that it would penetrate into our hearts. And I put my name at the top of that list as this passage is focused towards me. But Lord, we all can glean from it. We can all grow as servants and ministers and believers. Help us, Lord, to be those that are taking heed. Help us to be those that are giving ourselves entirely to the indispensable priority of the word of God. Help us to be those that are paying attention to our character. Don't allow us to become discouraged through being despised and just to throw in the towel. But may we remember our calling and our gifting, Lord. So I pray you'd encourage your church who you've bought with your precious blood.